Hello, and thanks for listening to this episode of the Mount Sinai Health Partners podcast. I'm Rob Fields, Senior Vice President and CMO for Pop Health. Um, and look, really looking forward to today. We get to speak to Sean Morrison, Dr. Sean Morrison, um, who is the Chair of Geriatrics here at Mount Sinai. Thanks for being on, Sean. Pleasure. An absolute pleasure. Sean, if you don't mind telling us a little bit about yourself and how you landed to be where you are. I'd be <laughs> delighted to. I am the System Chair for Geriatrics and Palliative Medicine uh, for Mount Sinai. And I've been in that role for about two years, but been at Mount Sinai since I finished my internal medicine residency in 1993 in various roles within the department and the institution. And got into this field, as you said, really through a couple of directions. When I was in medical school, palliative medicine actually didn't exist. And I was drawn to the field of geriatrics for really three reasons. One, it was the opportunity to have a long relationship with patients, and the focus in geriatrics was on maximizing quality of life and allowing people to live as best they can in the setting of what are typically age-related illnesses, multiple chronic conditions, um, sometimes functional impairment, sometimes cognitive impairment. It was the opportunity to work with patients and their families there over and to help in many ways with coping with age-related stress and illness. And the third was it was an area in medicine that had not really been well-developed and Mm -hmm. that as a scientist, the evidence base was really lacking for many of the things that we needed, or for many of the treatments that we needed. We just right. didn't have an evidence. Right. And so there was an opportunity as a science, scientist to really make a difference. Yeah. Um, I came to New York in 1990 to do my internal medicine residency, and that was right dead smack in the middle of the AIDS epidemic. And wow. that was at a time when there was no effective treatment Mm -hmm. for HIV. Mm -hmm. What treatments we had were associated with really terrible side effects. And as I walked around the hospital at that time, what I realized was that after four years of medical school and you know one, two, and three years of residency, I had no idea how to effectively relieve the suffering that I was seeing in patients living with HIV who mm-hmm. were my own age, right. um, patients living with cancer, and the older adults that I initially started my interest in starting to take care of. And so when I was looking at post-residency training, the closest I could really get to, you know, to that goal was geriatrics. Right. I came to Mount Sinai. Um, because there were people here who were really focused on that aspect of care for older adults. Right. And was very, it was very fortuitous that when I finished my fellowship in 95, George Soros, the multi-billionaire, was putting millions of dollars into developing what was then a brand new field called palliative care. And myself mm-hmm. and three colleagues here wrote a grant to develop palliative care at Mount Sinai. And that was the beginning of the palliative care program at Sinai. We became the, well, we tied with Mass General to become the fifth medical center 
in the United States to have an academic palliative care program. Way early in the way early. Yeah. Um, and so that's and then have been really focused on both developing an evidence in palliative care, but more importantly ensuring that we have models of care delivery so that every person with serious illness in their family has access to what palliative care provides, which is one expert symptom control mm-hmm. in the setting of a serious illness so that people are comfortable and mm-hmm. attain a the best quality of life they can for right. as long as possible. Right. It's a bit effective communication around treatment choices, goals of care, um, delivering bad news, for example. Yeah. And it's about supporting and coordinating care for the most vulnerable, sickest five percent of the population in a relatively fragmented healthcare system. Right. And what we try very hard to do is to provide an added layer of support to patients and families, and as importantly, clinicians. Right. Because if I'm a, for example, a primary care doc, you know, five out of a hundred of my patients have a serious illness requiring right. palliative care, right. and yet that's the patient population that can take up all of my time. Right. And it's a patient population that I, because they're not people I see, um, it's hard for me to marshal the resources for them without a team of nursing, social work, chaplaincy, right. which is what palliative care has. So right. we provide that added layer of support to patients, families, and clinicians. And we do that for people of all ages, You know, whether you're a neonate or whether you're an octogenarian, and at the same time as all other appropriate, life-prolonging, curative, high-quality treatments. So that it's really it's the added layer of support rather than instead of. Right. There's so many things in your statements that I would love to ask questions about. So I'll, I'll start actually with the, so that you entered this via geriatrics. Yeah. I distinctly remember in medical school when we covered pediatrics, there was a, a cover sheet, I think it may have been on the syllabus or something like that from the chair of pediatrics that said, you know, kids are not just little adults. And I'm wondering if you, when you think about the care of the elderly, uh, how much of that same mantra really applies, right? The older folks are just just not old twenty year olds yeah. or something. Yeah, you know, you know there's this you, there is this myth out there that you everything sort of stops in your twenties. That you go, you know, <laughs> you're a neonate, um, right? And then we learn, you know, it's as you said, it's drummed into us that kids are not just little adults, and right. that. You know, organs change and cognition changes and development happens, and that at 21 or 25, everything stops. <laughs> and the reality is, it doesn't. Uh, right. You know, an 85 year old kidney is really different right. than a 25 year old right. kidney. Right. An 85 year old brain is really different right. than a 20 year old brain, even if it doesn't have pathology associated with a disease associated with it just life just life right right. you know my 55 year old arteries i discovered are not my 20 year old arteries (laughs) nor is my cholesterol for that matter right um and so you're right and so what happens is that you know there's this period you know probably 20s into you know 70s where there are some very subtle changes but we all see them Mm -hmm. and then that period of life from 70 on to 105 
there are real changes, mm -hmm. and there are real changes in terms of physiology, mm -hmm. um, that our organs metabolize drugs differently than they did when they were younger, right. Right. for example, and there are changes in our brain, right. cognitive changes that are normal and happen outside of diseases of the brain, such as Alzheimer's disease, yeah. and yet we pretend that that doesn't, yeah, it doesn't happen. Exist. It doesn't happen. Right. And the other thing that happens is the older we get, the more likely are we are to experiences diseases that 100 years ago we never lived long enough to That's, get. Yeah, no, right. Cancer peaks in the elderly. Right. Alzheimer's disease and related dementias peaks in one, one's 80s. Heart disease, stroke, uh, multiple chronic conditions, osteoarthritis, right. diabetes, all of these are diseases primarily of older, older adults. Folks, yeah. Right. Um, yeah, and and you, you mentioned something when you gave a, a talk to our team a, a few months ago, and how that actually manifests is also way more nuanced than we the general public thinks, meaning that in the same way as you mentioned earlier this, this morning, everyone, everyone thinks it stops at age 21. There's also, I think, some thought, well, you know, once you start having these conditions, it's a progressive decline and easily predictable. One, one of the nuances that you mentioned is that if you live beyond a certain age, there's actually differentials in life expectancy if you hit like certain benchmarks. I don't know if that's the right phrase. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. Yeah. Um, you know, we think about, and actually it's interesting because the CDC just came out with the life expectancy charts uh -huh. this I week. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, it seems that we have, we're getting a handle on some of the opioid-related deaths because right. life expectancy is increasing again, and that right. number comes out around somewhere between 78 and 79, a little right. more if you're a woman, a little less if you're a man, right. and everybody looks at it and says, ah, oh, my average life expectancy is 78. Yeah. And the reality is, <laughs> well, you know, for those of us who get to age 65, life expectancy becomes 84 and right. for the 50 percent of us who get to 84 we can live we can expect to live into our late 80s and yeah. for the 25 percent of us who get there uh, we're looking at mid 90s and I'm so believing. yeah right. and so the time after 65 for most of us is going to be somewhere between 20 to 25 years yeah. and for most of us a lot of that is going to be good health, mm -hmm. but the vast majority of us at some point will develop one or more serious illnesses, yeah. osteoarthritis. Right. Some of us will develop dementia, yeah. and we're going to live with those for many, many, many years. Mm -hmm. You know, this idea that we live, we live, we live, everything is exactly the way it is, and suddenly we die. Right. So, Sean, full disclosure here, I'm going to... Uh, for the folks that are listening, uh, we've had to do this in a couple of takes because, um, as often happens, you were involved in a in a patient situation with um, sounding like a one of your visiting doc patients who was having a hard time clinically, and there was some key f family decisions that you were helping navigate, and uh, it it was really wonderful to witness uh, how you handled that. But I, I thought we could talk a little bit about how it's illustrative a little bit about the difficulties when you go to plan around complexities of care and symptoms start to evolve and how you handle that. Yeah, and I guess just to s mask it a little bit and summarize, because I don't think the situation that interrupted us is that unusual. Yeah. And I think it, all of us, either in primary care and certainly those in, pal those in palliative care, um, encounter this all the time and 
just to sort of give a little bit of background, what happened was I have a um, older adult, very um, was very successful, eighty year old man, who has a neurodegenerative disease, mm-hmm. and. In the past, he and I and he and his wife and I have talked about, you know, if he were to develop a life-threatening event, that he would want to be cared for at home. Right. That he would want to stay at home and he wouldn't want to come into the hospital. And we did everything that you're supposed to do in that regard. Right. We documented it. We talked about it. Yeah. We shared those documentations. We revisited that. And then he developed... And this was when he was relatively yeah, well. Yeah, this was relatively right. well. Um, As you should do. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, relatively well. Um, his cognition um, was still very good. Mm-hmm. And last week, right in the midst of when we were... Actually, the day before we yeah. were talking, um, he did indeed develop an acute infection. He came into the office, and we had a long conversation, and we gave him some intravenous fluids because mm-hmm. he was dehydrated. We started him on antibiotics um, and um, talked, and he went home. Mm-hmm. And initially there was a lot of discussion mm-hmm. about whether we go to the emergency department. Sure. And when I was talking with you, I both got the blood cultures back, which were right. not good news, right. and um, um also the rest of the labs and had to have a conversation with his wife who was his healthcare proxy and his son mm-hmm. and to a certain extent to the ability he could participate in it uh, my patient about what those meant and what we did next yeah. and we knew what his wishes were yeah. um, we knew what that conversation had been about and yet, when it actually happens, it's a very different situation. Right. And what were the risks and benefits of coming to the hospital? What would he gain by staying at home? What were the risks of staying at home? Um, and what was the right thing at that particular moment? Um, right. And all the conversations in the past may have helped a little bit, but... They didn't, it gets pretty real. Pretty it gets pretty real pretty <laughs> quickly. And, um, yeah. you know, when the possibility of dying becomes very real and not hypothetical, um, life begins to look pretty good. Yeah. Um, and I guess, you know, what I initially thought was going to be a 10-minute break turned into a 45-minute sure. to an hour break. And yeah. that's what it took. For everybody to be comfortable with the plan that we would continue things at home because things were going in the right direction. Yeah. Um, that the hosp- hospitalization for this particular person would not be the right match for his goals. Right. And then, in fact, it could potentially make things worse because of the potential for a superimposed delirium on top of his right. cognitive changes. And that home was the best place. And... It took a long time, and it's not something that the average primary care doc really can do in their office. Right. Because, you know, as, as a palliative medicine physician, I expect my day to have these types of interruptions. Of course. If I have 
you know, a good primary care practice and I'm expecting and I'm seeing people on yep. a schedule that I'm supposed to. Right. An hour break in the middle means oh that gosh. I don't provide care for five, six people. E- yeah, sure. Easily. 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 Yeah. And that's not that's not good for them. Um, yeah. It's not good for me. And it's not good for the patient that I'm caring for. And I think that's where having palliative care teams and palliative expertise as the added layer of support behind both primary care physicians and others that care for serious illness can be really beneficial because it's something that we they do, we do day in and day out. So yeah. these conversations are routine rather than extraordinary. Right. Um, the time to have them is built in right. to our day. Right. And it allows us to take advantage of, or not take advantage, but rather address the gaps in workforce, the yeah. gaps in primary care, right? Um, the gaps in care for people with serious illness. right? And so I think it leverages the various specialties very well. And yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I actually, it was a little bit of a gift, I think, to be able to to witness some of that. Um, it, it was it was wonderful the way you. I mean, just talking with families, it was a, it was, it was, um, it was great to witness it. Uh, how you did that, you handled it beautifully. Um, but I imagine, and you were saying earlier that it's hard to know how those past conversations. You know, because again, yeah. from the family's perspective, oh my gosh, now all of a sudden I got to make these decisions. But I imagine the level of trust. I mean, just witnessing one side of the conversation, the level of trust that requires had to be built over time. Absolutely right. Yeah, and and I think that is the role that that develops, particularly within a primary care relationship. Sure. And I think you're absolutely right. What I view my role as, particularly in those situations, is I think it's going to be very hard to right. predict, predict what the future is sure, um, and predict all the decisions that are going to be made. Right. However, what I can do is I can understand what my patients' values and goals are. Right. I can understand a little bit about how they make decisions. Right. I can help prepare them to make difficult decisions mm-hmm. in terms of these are the things we maybe have to think about. And as you said building that type of trust so that I can make a recommendation or even say something like, it sounds like you're having a hard time making a decision. Mm-hmm. Would it be okay if I made the following suggestion and we did this? Right. And having that trust that we have know each other, I know yep. what their values or goals are, I'm taking that into account when I'm thinking about what is the right Absolutely. medical decision, right. and then helping them in that moment to make the decision that's best for them and or right. their loved one. And I think that's that's the best type of decision making. And I, I, there's something about that process. I, I think I, you and I have t- spoken before that I'm a family doc. I think when I first started hearing about palliative care, I, like others, were uh, was uninformed, I think, about what palliative care was relative and how uh, relative to hospice, how it's different than hospice. That I still think today, that's where people go, um, and more often than not, it's almost like a marketing problem, you know. What a, but I felt like what we just talked about is really indicative of what that is, right? It, it feels like one of the biggest differences is is the time, 
you know, as you develop this, we, we know that we refer, even we utilize hospice even way yeah. too late, but we certainly utilize palliative care, if at all, which is uh, a problem. But when we do, it often feels like it's too late also. You know, it seems like that's one of the biggest differences is that time to establish that goal, right? No, I, I would completely agree. And I think that's why palliative care focuses on needs mm -hmm. rather than prognosis. So mm -hmm. it's people with serious illness and it's focused on addressing their needs. Right. It's focused on patients and families. Mm -hmm. It doesn't replace all other appropriate treatments. Sure. And most importantly, I think from my perspective, it's the added layer of support to patients, families, and physicians, not the instead of support. Right. So that unlike, and to a certain extent, unlike hospice, for example, mm -hmm. um, we work in collaboration of with course. you know, the, the right. treating physician. And we're there to come in to help when needed, um, but we don't want to replace that relationship. And at the same time, we want to develop that long, more long-standing relationship with patients yeah. and families so when a crisis does happen, right. there is that level of trust right. with the expertise that we bring. Yeah. Let's take it as a given that we need more palliative care yeah. physicians, right? Let's okay. just, let's <laughs> um, because that, certainly that would be lovely. But in the meantime, uh, we are suffering from an overall shortage of uh, both primary care and palliative care um, physicians and providers, because there's nurse practitioners and PAs as well. Um, what are your thoughts in leading uh, our group uh, here and our strategy here in the system? You know, what do we do short term? You know, let, yeah. Let's imagine we could get more docs, but short of that, what, what do we do? Yeah, I think there's a couple of innovative things that we can do, and I would say they're innovative things that the health system is doing. Mm -hmm. I think the first is that developing core knowledge and skills in palliative care within our health system mm -hmm. and our practitioners is critically important. Right. And to make up for the education that none of us got. Yeah, that's absolutely um, right. Yeah. You know, it's no surprise that the data suggests we treat pain very badly because none of us ever got training in it. Right. Um, and so there is that set of core knowledge and skills that we all have that make that makes our lives easier. Mm -hmm. um, you don't have to think about it. And I think there have been various training aspects that have happened to essentially provide that education that we never got. That's not a fundamental level. However, at a more consequential level in some respects, it's about developing systems of care that match the population that we're taking mm -hmm. care of mm -hmm. so that we begin to identify those patient populations that have are the most complex, mm -hmm. have the highest needs, and tend to be the most expensive. Mm -hmm. And proactively identifying them before they run into trouble. Mm -hmm. And providing, again, that added layer of support through programs such as our Align program, sure. which is in the Martha Stewart Center, which is a wraparound for older adults with serious yeah. illness. Um, our visiting doctors program, for example, for right. people who are homebound. Um, our new developed um, palliative care at home program, which is focused on ensuring people get the care they need mm -hmm. in their home. And beginning to really target 
those patients who will benefit from those services, and those who benefit from, for example, our primary care, our family physicians, mm -hmm. and our specialty mm -hmm. clinics. And I think we need to move away from the sort of the one-size-fits-all yeah, sure. um, approach yeah. and recognize that we need a lot better integration and that we have this umbrella of services that should be consistent for our patients and our families and invisible to them, and yet mm -hmm. we should be figuring out where people go. Yeah. Does that make, yeah, it does makes, that make it sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Um, do you think, I, I actually don't know what the actual stats are, but I get the sense of with our visiting doctors program, there's a f at least a couple of folks that are also palliative care physicians. There are, yeah. Uh, I imagine that's not an accident, either it, in terms of desire or programmatic structure. Absolutely yeah. not, because when you think about the homebound population, mm -hmm. Um, it, it's not it's not uniform. Right. There are people who are at home because they have serious complex illness, mm -hmm. advanced dementia, for example, which makes it extraordinarily difficult for them to come in right. to see the doctor. Right. Um, that person is a completely appropriate for palliative care and mm -hmm. probably needs a palliative care physician for mm -hmm. their specialized needs. There are other people who are homebound because they have a paraplegia, right. and yet, aside from that, yeah. um, they are otherwise very healthy, but it's very difficult for them to get into see care, right. so we should be bringing care to them. Right. Um, that group should be trained, cared for by an internist, a family physician, geriatrician, yeah. who has expertise in home-based home medicine. Right. And to your point, it's individualizing. It's the absolutely individualizing. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, Sean, I appreciate your time uh, where I think this is amazing. Obviously, a ton more work to do to help uh, identify the right populations and get them what they need. But um, I, I appreciate you uh, sharing your time with us and, and also talking a little bit about that experience we had last time. I think it was, it was really helpful context for what we're talking about. So. My pleasure. Yeah. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. And if you have ideas for a future podcast, please email me at robert.fields at mountsinai.org. Mm -hmm.